0: Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com Promo code OSCARS for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. We've lost Joanna, who's off in Los Angeles because she can just jet down to L.A. whenever she wants. That's how California works.
2: I I believe she drives, actually.
1: No, well, jet in a
2: car. uh, Yeah, yeah, those beautiful, picturesque highways.
1: So at the end of this episode, we're going to share an interview that I did with Rebecca Skloot and Rose Byrne. Rose is an actor in the HBO movie, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it is based on Rebecca Skloot's book. And Rose Byrne actually plays Rebecca Skloot. And this is the first time I think I've interviewed a person and then the person who plays them in a movie, which is a really interesting, surreal experience. And uh, they look alike, which you don't necessarily expect for an author, because who knows what an author looks like. They could have done whatever.
3: You should have brought an actor to play you. I know.
1: (laughs) Very, very, very
3: very Charlie Kaufman. Yeah.
1: -hmm. Yeah, Or you guys could have pretended to be me, and I could have mm-hmm. hidden behind a screen. Hi, I'm Katie Rich. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very meta experience, but a very uh-huh. good interview. That movie airs on HBO this weekend, and uh, we've talked about the incredibly competitive miniseries TV movie contest at the Emmys this year, and that's just going to throw its hat right in the ring. Well,
2: there's this um, up-and-coming young actress named Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. who's in that, yes, right? Yes, yes. I hear she has a lot of uh, promise. Yeah. yeah, so... Yeah,
1: it's a shame She doesn't have the star power to really uh, muscle her way into an awards <laughs> yeah. race. Yeah. But before we get into that, we want to uh, talk a little bit more about more television. The Leftovers came back also on HBO over the weekend, yeah. and it's one of those shows that it feels like critics are constantly pulling you by the collars and being like, watch this show, like The Americans. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it hasn't worked on me. I haven't watched it. But Richard, I want it's the last season. They,
3: but they- I don't know. Is yeah. that true? Because the first season, I feel like, was very critically up and down. It was the yes. second season
2: that really did Second season. Yeah. yeah. So the show premiered in... 2014 the first season and it was you know people were like oh it's it's interesting it's based on a novel by tom parada and i think the first season is basically the novel's story yeah um and it's about you know two percent of the world's population disappears all of a sudden was it the rapture and are the people who are left behind kind of like damned you know whatever so it's um it's an interesting premise Mm -hmm. uh kind of i think all about uh well grief and depression and so it's heavy stuff so that first season yeah it didn't quite you know, There's a because, lot
3: of Liv Tyler smoking, like, yeah, Marlboro Light like, yeah. 100s. These, as, a, as a cult member, mm-hmm, yeah, the, 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 mm-hmm. these kind of
2: people who smoke cigarettes and but you, all white.
3: you had a
1: lot of affection for it then, too. I did, did yeah. You? I mean, I thought it was stylistically
2: scene really scene. interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it has this beautiful Max Richter music, and the cast, Justin Theroux, Carrie Kuhn, Amy Brenneman, Liv Tyler, are all we were really good in it, in that first season. So it, it was enough to get me to watch, and you know. Justin Theroux, Theroux
3: also did a fair amount of shirtless sort of jogging and things like I that. I don't know what you're implying.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got... Got that body, like I mean, be yeah. to we wear got shirt. it <laughs> Yeah,
2: that show is called Jennifer Aniston is a lucky woman. <laughs> um, so then it came yeah. back for the second season. So then it came back totally for the different. second season, and it just had this different vibe about it. Um, the first season took place in upstate New York, and then at the beginning of the second season, it already really relocated to this kind of like. Religious site, small town in Texas, um, with a lot of the main cast still intact, but then also new cast members like Kevin Carroll and Regina King kind of adding to the mix. And, you know, as the episodes one, two, three of the second season played out, you kind of saw on Twitter, like, criticky types being like, wait, what's going on with this show? And then by the end of that season, and people were, myself included, speaking like, well, no pun intended, rapturously about, (laughs) because it was just this beautifully, inventive and weird artistic like it's a it's a beautiful piece of art that second season of tell Mm -hmm. of of the leftovers and the acting is phenomenal there's this especially great scene between regina king and carrie coon where um they basically one gives a monologue and then the other gives one back and it's like just this incredible tete-a-tete that you know had that show had a higher profile in its first season and then the second season used that momentum i mean that would have been like emmy gold right no, there but didn't
1: that season also open with like a flashback to a cave woman or something yeah, to, like, really wild th-
2: tens of thousands of years ago that was the, <laughs> the, the first sequence in the second season is that and so that was an immediate announcement of like oh they're going to do something a little bit bigger <laughs> yeah well, than ca- this and it's thing. we're
1: saying that the show is created and i guess executive produced by damon lindelof who yeah. uh was one of the main movers behind lost and mm-hmm. really went through the ringer with both making a show that people loved and going head to head with the fans and kind of getting Constant feedback from people telling him what his show should be, and really struggling with that to the point that he kind of quit Twitter for a while. And with the leftovers season one, there was all this negative feedback that it seems like it had an impact on him. And then somehow he came back for season two, and now season three, galvanized and really able to do what he wants to do.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, like I said, the that the, the fir- my understanding, I haven't read the book, is that the first season of the show really kind of ends where the novel ends, mm-hmm. and so then he and Tom Peroto, who is credited as a co creator on the show, just were like, okay, so where does this story go now? And it turns out. That it gets more expansive and a lot more kind of existential and um metaphysical and you know you see a lot of what Damon Lindelof brought to lost in this show these kind of seemingly random asides that then actually turn out to be you know so they have some sort of grand significance later on jumps back in time or forward in time in some cases that worked really beautifully on lost but when on a 22 episode you know season you know first over six seasons like lost got very cluttered and hard to kind of resolve Mm -hmm. but with the leftovers where it's a hard out after three seasons this current season's the new one is only eight episodes like maybe this is where lindelof's kind of you know erratic and sort of grandiose storytelling actually can work because he has these limits imposed upon him i don't know i'm hoping that that's the case i've Mm -hmm. seen seven of the eight episodes of season three and i'm and it's very different than season two but i'm into it
1: well isn't that what we keep learning with these new structures of television like big little lives or like the leftovers it's like when someone is given a limited amount of television and, and then free reign they're just able to do so much more like it makes me really intrigued for what's going to happen with twin peaks when it comes back because sure. david lynch was working on network television in a basically different universe and what can he do when he's got a more budget and you know eight episodes to play with
2: yeah. I mean, I hope that people will go back and watch the seasons prior if they haven't already seen them and then tune into season three. But I do want to say to the people who already have seen season two and loved it, just be prepared that it is. This is a different season of television. The tone is different. It's a lot more it's a lot funnier. It's a lot more. Antic. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's still steeped in like really sad stuff, but like, yeah, it's kind of more of, a, of an adventure. Okay. They go to like the Australian outback and are kind of in search of something. And it's, really? it's, um, yeah. I mean, it has these kind of sad digressions, but like the main, it, it's a lot more plot heavy. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Huh? You,
3: how it? about how about if you haven't watched the first two, can you just watch it? Oh,
2: I think you would have no idea what was going on. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I feel
1: like <laughs> really I've been told that I could start in season two. If I you
2: could start to. in season two, yeah, okay, yeah, I which is so. where I was and just thinking just of read in. like a plot synopsis of season one. There would be a couple things that would be confusing, but but yeah. So my hope is that you know a lot of times we've talked about the Emmys kind of running a year or two behind Mm -hmm. so my hope is that because season two is so revered that even if season three isn't as good that this show will pick up some accolades just based on the strength of season two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think season three is good. But, um, but you know, because Carrie Coon, again, is amazing. Amy Brenneman in season three just gives this incredible performance where it's like, where has she been for the past, you know, I don't know how long yeah. since judging Amy or wherever. It's just like they find really cool things to do with really good actors. So, mm-hmm. Well,
1: you talk about that scene with Carrie Coon and Regina King, and yeah. Regina King has won back-to-back Emmys for yeah. American Crime, so you'd think that some, Not for Lefters, some yeah. Emmy glow could rub off on her. And I, then they so. I, yeah. I don't think it works yeah. that way, but it does seem like Carrie Coon is making her way with the kind of a performance that it, regina king had on a show that you know people were watching but not paying that much attention to but like she just kind of pulled the spotlight to herself mm-hmm. so maybe carrie can do the same thing
2: yeah i think this could be a big year for carrie coon we've mentioned before because she has this in fargo so um and she seems like a great like a good person and you know so i'm rooting <laughs> i'm rooting for her.
1: yeah we'll talk about fargo next week when joanna's back so yeah. she is uh, the resident fargo She absolutely um, is I'm, i have
2: to write a review today of what i've seen of the, the new season and it's like I wish that I had sort of Joanna's like intense fan knowledge. <laughs> you know, I wish I was It's armed not just. With that.
1: What have you done to Ewan McGregor? Like written a right. hundred times. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen? Mike, have you seen the shots of Ewan McGregor in the new season of Fargo? Oh no, he's got like a pot belly and like long hair with like a bald pad. He looks. Awful and almost recognizable, unrecognizable, really? yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know,
3: I know it's we'll get
2: into it next week. And, yeah. We'll talk yeah. about,
1: we'll talk about it next week. Well, and also by next week, uh, we will have gotten to the backside of the Tribeca Film Festival. That's which right. kicks off here in New York. Uh, yeah. I guess today, as you're listening to this, it's in our neighborhood. It's, you know, it is, neighbors of Tribeca, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and Richard, as our film critic, you're the one who we send out to uh, bring back to us what's interesting that, uh, Mike and I are too locked in the office to actually go mm-hmm. see movies. So what's that Tribeca that you're intrigued by? And saying that a lot of things that premiere Tribeca will show up on VOD in short. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. or in theater. So, you know, things that are in Tribeca now will likely be available everywhere or close to everywhere pretty soon.
2: Yeah. I mean, Tribeca is an, an interesting festival. I think we talked about this last year that it's a little bit sort of trying to still find its identity. It's only 16 years old, which is, you know, about a third of the age of Sundance, a little less than that. Cannes
1: you know, turning 70 this year.
2: <laughs> right. Cannes is 70. You know, so actually, no, right? Sundance is about 30 years old. So, So half the age. But, you know, I think one thing that Tribeca has focused on recently, very smartly, is documentaries. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of good stuff or seemingly good stuff coming up in that front. I'm most excited personally for Whitney. Can I be me? A documentary about Whitney Houston. I think, you know, that's a fascinating and tragic but also at times joyous story about one of the best singers of the last you know who did they long. get the
1: participation of because her family is so all over the place
2: you know i'm not actually sure which is one thing that makes me more curious i actually yeah. don't really know much about it yeah. um so i don't know whether it's going to be a really deep dive or, or if it's going to be kind of testimonial from people who worked with her or or whatnot so i'm really curious about that there's also a Clive Davis documentary, so there's a lot, of, a lot of music stuff happening. Yeah, and
1: that's the opening night, Clive Davis. That is, so yeah.
2: I, they're, they're kind of really touting that. They're going to do a big concert. I think Aretha Franklin's performing. Wow. Earth, Wind, Wind, and Fire, I think, is performing. Like It's a really big wow. kind of an event, which is a good kickoff for the festival. You know? Yeah. And then there's this documentary that I'm not really sure why anyone would watch it called I Am Heath Ledger, about him. I mean, you know, it's an interesting story, but again, like, oof.
1: Yeah, Heath Ledger and Whitney Houston in one film festival. That's yeah, uh, a lot that's, of tragic that's, That could be
2: an intense double bill. I am Heath Ledger. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Was that like, well, that makes me think it's a lot of his footage or footage of him. It, they I have had the
1: participation of his family. They're, you know, his sister, I think, is doing yeah. interviews. So the, right. it seems like a pretty intimate look there. I mean, the cult you know, personality around Heath Ledger is pretty intense. He's been dead almost 10 years.
3: Yeah, For subjects recent enough, something's happened in documentary where you can actually stitch together
2: footage of basically every important moment in their lives if you put in enough effort. Well, you think about the Amy Winehouse documentary. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Which in some ways it was like, oh, so soon, but they actually, I mean, that was a beautiful tragic movie you know yeah Yeah. um that won an oscar i think
3: i think cameron crow made a pearl jam documentary i think so yeah Yeah. and that was the first time i remember where i was just like oh like there. if you look around enough and that was even before phones was just people there was always some person with a like camcorder at everything you can basically tell the whole story if you just take
2: the time if you can find that stuff yeah yeah i just read uh, yeah it does look like that a lot of the footage in the heath ledger is that stuff he shot himself kind of um, like a kind of like um also, like, Montage of Heck, the uh, Kurt Cobain yes. documentary, which mm-hmm. was a lot of footage from their, you know, crazy days. Um, him I mean, and I'm
1: going to sound crazy, but Justin Bieber, Never Say Never is a pretty good concert documentary with a lot uh, of that's footage true. backstage. I mean, he's a, yeah. another pop culture icon. Not, I'm going to
2: take your word
3: for that.
1: Yeah, you know, you don't have to check it out. <laughs> uh, but but yeah. I did
3: look at uh, Ewan McGregor's pictures from Fargo.
1: Oh, and there we go. It looks awesome, I think, <laughs>
2: in my opinion. Okay. Better than so ever. That was just a little <laughs> aside.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. What's maybe less tragic at um,
2: Tribeca? Well, that's, that's that's a good <laughs> that's question. It. I don't know if it's tra- It's not tragic. It might be kind of alarming. One of the bigger narrative um, entries at the festival is uh, The Circle, the mo- new movie from James Ponsult based on the Dave Eggers book starring Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. It's this kind of it's a story about a Google slash Facebook as mostly Google S company. It's overreach. Uh, even for its employees like in into their lives it just starts to get more and more troubling and you know it, it escalates as it goes it's a thriller and when I read the book a few years ago I saw you know my my dad had recommended it to me saying like oh you know this gets a lot right and I was like oh you're just being an alarmist old man and I read the book and I was like yeah this is all a-. and now it's kind of like oh, a lot of this has come to pass in mm. in the in mm. just a few years so it's all about kind of surveillance and like what you share willingly with the world and, and the internet and who owns that information and that could be interesting The
1: Circle looks so good on paper and I hate to be that that person that says release date is everything, but it makes me wonder that it's coming out in the spring. He's premiering yeah, to record yep. opening about like a week or two yeah. later. I don't know. I, I mean, I've loved everything James Possible's ever made, so but I don't want to... this wanna... is an odd It's an odd choice for him. him. Yeah, I mean,
2: th- his last movie was the wonderful... Um, the
1: End of the Tour. The End of
2: the Tour with uh, Jason Siegel.
1: Former guest on Little Goldman.
2: That's exactly right. And it's, this is such a weird tonal... I mean, I guess working on a movie about David Foster Wallace and then adapting a book by Dave Eggers, yep. like that's a... There's a commonality boy literature into Gen X Gen X uh, geniuses yeah literary geniuses
1: I mean I am excited to see John Boyega in not a Star Wars movie because he kind of had his big breakthrough I mean he was amazing and attacked the block like five years ago but now he's very famous as Finn so I'm hoping for good things from him there and
2: an Oscar connection um, also in the movie is young Eller Coltrane from Boyhood who we watched grow up yay so we'll see how he does in that you know I'm also curious like it's 2017, and the movies still have a hard time talking about the internet, you know, or, yep. or, or showing it in any sort of compelling way. Um, I
1: saw the Fifth Estate. I know what you're
2: talking oh. about. Yeah. I mean, the Fifth Estate looked like something from like 1994. It was like, <laughs> what is this? So, I mean, I think that, like, obviously. Well, so- you know, in fairness, the Soviet propaganda ministers requested a lot of changes on that mm, that's oh that's true. right, that's right fair, of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot so, of notes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um so past that you know then we get into some kind of more eclectic territory because uh, you know that's kind of the nature of this festival i'm really curious about two potential comebacky kind of things one is which uh, a movie called love after love with annie mcdowell who plays a kind of newly widowed woman you know annie mcdowell has been doing a cable television show for a few years something cove i think but she hasn't really been doing a lot of movies so this could no. uh, except for excuse me magic mike xx
1: which she was great in. she <laughs> was you for really good in that me. um cedar cove
2: cedar cove yes thank you on the hallmark channel i believe
1: <laughs> imdb is not revealing yeah. that information
2: um so that could be interesting just to see her in like a little indie drama you know i yeah. that's we have not seen her in that vein in a long time and then we have Dog Gears with Burt Reynolds. Uh Burt Reynolds. Yeah, about a former movie star who wow. is getting ready to get a lifetime achievement award. So, you know, Burt Reynolds is somebody who has had a comeback already when he was in Boogie Nights and got an Oscar nomination and didn't win, but
1: and did not take it well from as the gift no. evidence proves. No, he did not.
2: And then he kind of went away again after doing a couple other movies, but now this I don't know, this could be another thing. It's again talking about meta. This feels very meta, you know. Yeah.
1: There was a great feature on him in Vanity Fair a couple of years ago. I'm trying to look up the exact date. November of 2015, Burt Reynolds isn't broke, but he's got a few regrets. So if you want kind of the update for the context of a comeback vehicle for him, it's a good read.
2: Read that, then go see this movie or or wait for it to be on demand or wherever it's yeah, going to be. Yeah,
1: obviously you want to see movies in theaters, but yeah. kind of the uh, the interesting way that festivals have been going is if it's not Manchester by the Sea, that a lot of these movies will wind up on VOD. Like uh, The Sundance Audience or a Jury Award winner, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Like it's on Netflix now.
2: It's on Netflix yeah. now, that's right. So yeah, that's kind of what I have my eye on. Well, and, and not to you know continue
3: to confirm my reputation as the childless dad of com. <laughs> but the trip to spain i'm excited for the trip <gasps> oh my to spain. god how could i forget yeah. the trip to spain yeah i mean the second trip movie was not as good as the first trip movie but, but it was still good they still pretty good i mean there's yeah. like there's there's nothing wrong with hanging out for two hours with those two well
1: guys. i was going to say what's this one about but i'm just guessing it's uh eating food in spain
3: i think eating food in spain i
1: would um, i
2: would guess. yeah if you can't make it to you know mediterranean europe this summer right. this spring like watch that movie and <laughs> coogan kind <of> and bryden
3: <laughs> cringe at coogan's sex life uh yeah, you know yeah, and, yeah. and cringe at bryden's puns and you know and and look at all the food it's fun yeah
2: i was lucky two years ago when the trip to italy came out and you know, they're at all these beautiful sun splashed places having lovely food, and I felt really jealous and wanted to go, and then I got to go to Cannes like two weeks later. Here <laughs> you go. So uh, so yeah, that that's a great one, Mike, that I had forgotten about. That's exciting. Um and then they're also doing a kind of special screening with a panel for have you guys heard of these movies, The Godfather and the Godfather part 2. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they got a couple um, of
1: Italians in them.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so Robert De Niro obviously is one of the founders of the festival and so they're doing a retrospective on those two films. I love how they left out 3, too. They're just like they're like, yeah, we're not good. Even gonna. we know yeah. that that was Yeah, yeah cuz like De
1: Niro's not in one either. So it's not the, right. not like they're doing the yeah. De Niro ones. And, and, and,
2: and, like... and Andy Garcia was waiting by the phone. So <laughs> yeah. Just, no, nope. Sorry, dude. <laughs> well, they're showing both
1: movies back to back, right? So you can just yeah. watch one and that that yeah. would be a really good. I mean, it's, it's long. An, You're in theater a long time. Just imagine just like focusing Focusing and being immersed yep. in that world for so long, but see.
2: seeing it in a big screen would be fun. I mean, I you know I don't do a lot of that kind of like when they revive things, but I went to a at Lincoln Center. They're doing a retrospective on the Steadicam earlier this year, and I went to see The Shining on the big screen, which Ooh, I'd never mm-hmm. seen. Yeah. So you know, if you get the opportunity, it, it can be yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, and I heard Brando's going to come in as a hologram for the Q and A. Oh, mm. great! Yeah, yeah, because yeah. no. <laughs> he he recorded hours and hours of hologram footage right. of himself <laughs> <laughs> when he was filming Doctor Moreau. Probably <laughs> did. Yeah, I am Marlon Brando. That documentary is on its way. Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's
1: okay. pretty good. I like that a lot better than your Trump, actually. Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> it's yeah. more pleasant. Uh, well, there will be coverage from you and a lot of our staff on VF.com. Yeah, Twitter.com. a
2: lot of the other staff, uh, Johanna Desta, Laura Bradley, will be covering. There's a lot of panels and kind of Yeah, which is one of the best Trump things Rebecca, Rebecca does, I think. Yeah. They
1: get really great talent and interesting people talking because well, they do Well, because
2: the talent doesn't have to be up in the goddamn mountains. It's yeah. in New York City. <laughs>
1: over, yeah. over the coast of yeah. France. Yeah, well,
2: yeah. It's easy to get to. So we will have some coverage. And hopefully, you know, there is always one surprise or not. I think Always Shine was a nice surprise for you last mm-hmm. year yeah i really like um, that movie you know i've seen some interesting things all
1: this panic which i i guess i think i'm quoting right. on the poster oh, it's like right. i write very few reviews these days but yeah. uh that one that one yeah. keeps coming back uh,
2: i'm excited to see my annual jessica biel project mm. this time it's a television show that's screening so oh. she's always got something to try back you a, know
1: she's got that children's um, restaurant so she's got to have some kind of sign oh, hustle oh keep, fudge you mean oh fudge yeah, yes
2: yeah someday I, I went the last time i went to california <laughs> i literally the last time i went to la i was literally the plane was ascending from la like you know, I'm, I'm on my way home, and it jumped on my head. I was like, oh, I forgot to go to O fudge. <laughs> <laughs> so um, next time,
1: you wait till my baby is old enough to eat at O fudge. Uh, then we go. can All make right. a trip because you have to have a kid, otherwise you get arrested. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, right?
2: maybe maybe Bill will do a, a pop up at Tribeca next year.
3: Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, you never know what's gonna happen at Tribeca. <laughs> Hey, everybody, I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood, and we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe expanding miniseries. That's right, get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right, listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for Performers We Love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there.
2: Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day.
1: You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at com slash Little LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Moby slash little And now we're going to share my conversation with Rebecca Skloot, the author of the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and Rose Byrne, who plays Rebecca Skloot in the upcoming HBO movie version of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Rebecca Skloot's book was published in 2010, and it's about this woman, Henrietta Lacks, whose cervical cancer cells were taken by doctors at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore without her knowledge or permission, and then were found to be self-replicating outside of her body, which made them, in the terms they call it, immortal. And those cells have since been used for research on everything from the polio vaccine to cancer to age treatment. And Henrietta Lacks was this incredibly important figure in medical research who very few people knew about. And Rebecca Sklut went and investigated her story and met her family members. Her daughter in the movie is played by Oprah Winfrey. And then this movie kind of shows the journey that she went on to find this incredible true story. So now listen to Rebecca and Rose talk about the experience of making the movie. So I'm here with Rebecca Skloot, the author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and Rose Byrne, who plays Rebecca Skloot in the movie, The Immortal Life of <laughs> Henrietta Lacks. Uh, thank you both for sitting here in the studio with me. Thanks for thank having us. us. I just want to hear, to start with, the first time you guys met, and, you know, I assume that you knew that, Rose, you would be playing Rebecca in the movie. So what was that meeting like?
0: We Skyped, I believe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a, Yeah, I think we Skyped. Yeah, we Skyped yeah I think first. we, like, texted and organized to Skype, and it was, yeah, you know, Skype's are funny and awkward and, <laughs> and also I was very eager to see Rebecca and just get to know her. And, um, but I was really lucky. She was very candid with me and a lot of things that aren't in the book, Rebecca shared with me about mm. her life and her you know, personal life, obviously. And so that, uh, I was really spoilt as an actor just getting all this information about what led to, uh, to her obsession with these cells that then led to her writing the book
1: and Rebecca you knew that the script was being written so you kind of had the experience of being turned into a character with the oh, screenwriter yeah. but
0: then is meeting the
1: actor who is you a whole another level
4: yeah I mean so I've been involved in the movie from the very beginning um for me when when we did the option for the film it was really important from to me that I and the Lax family be involved in it so this was sort of part of the negotiation process with like, which production company going to go with? Is it going to be major motion picture? HBO had been interested for a long time. And, you know, I went with them for a lot of different reasons. And one of them was that they were willing to make me and several members of Lax Family Consultants. And so I was involved in every version of the script, I would read the different drafts. And by the time I guess was by the time you came along, we were mm-hmm. on our third screenwriter, um George wow. C. Wolfe, who came along at you know, and he really rewrote the script in some pretty amazing ways and um directed it. But yeah, so at that point we had been through so many years. So with the option we started in 2010, and I met you mm-hmm. in two. Was it 2016? It was 2016, mm-hmm. right? Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. so yeah, it was six years of working on it, and so you know and. Yeah. And so by that point, it was, I mean, to have it actually come to fruition in that way in that moment was pretty amazing. But also, you know, I adamantly did not want to be in the book. Mm. Um,
1: I, oh, in the book at not, yeah. not just the movie, but the book itself.
4: Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I teach journalism and I often harp on my students <laughs> because I just, I have a like a problem with journalists who insert themselves in other people's stories. And I'm always saying, like, don't insert yourself into somebody's story. You know, this is not about you. And my philosophy about first-person journalism is that unless you are a character in the story, unless Mm -hmm. you actually have a, a role in the story, you should not be there because it can be a distraction and for various reasons. And so I was just like, this is not about me. This is about them. And so many people spent a lot of time trying to convince me that I should be in the book, Deborah Lacks included, my agent, my editor's and at a certain point, I realized that, um, it wasn't about inserting myself into their story. It was that, you know, their story was about so many people had come along wanting something from them, particularly white people, and it hadn't always gone well for them. And I was another one of those people who'd come along wanting something. And, um, along the way, you know, the book's about a lot of different things, but one of them is about ethics of journalism and telling people's stories. And I told the stories of all the other journalists who came along before me in the book and the impact they had on the family. And I realized, at a certain point that it would be dishonest to leave myself out and be like, I'm talking about all those other journalists, but not going to mention me that Mm I was like there for 10 years. But so intentionally, my character in the book is pretty one dimensional. You don't learn anything about my personal life. You don't learn anything about me that isn't related to Rebecca, the journalist, which I felt was really necessary for the book. But for the movie, it's a very different story because you actually have a living, breathing person who is a character. And so during the script development process with each of the different screenwriters, there was always this moment where they went do with you? Like, what's your narrative arc and who are you and how do you do this? And so I'd been through this and sometimes they would invent a narrative arc and I was like... That doesn't Did you have a romance at any
1: point. And there was potentially maybe Ooh, a- <laughs> not a
4: romance, but there was there was insinuation about some things maybe that had happened with some of my editors. <laughs> oh, and goodness. I was like, eh, eh. <laughs>
0: that's, that's Those not are also real people. <laughs>
4: right. Well, no. Yeah. No. But mm. these were like ma- made up editors. But yeah. that idea of like, you know, no, I definitely didn't didn't <laughs> use my feminine wiles to make this happen in any way. But so I'd been through that. You know, in various ways, you know, and so George and I had talked about it, and he really wanted to stick with the facts, which is what I I very much wanted too. But so, you know, when Rose came along, and we met, it was sort of a relief. It was not sort of, it really was a relief, because it was like, okay, now we can actually, we can talk about all the things that aren't in the movie, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that actually can make this the character a fully fleshed out character. And I could say, you know, here's what the real Rebecca's Glute wants the the movie Rebecca's Glute to sort of reflect. And that meant the world to me. And, you know, Rose just really dove into that and she you know listened to all my tapes with a lot of my audio tapes from my reporting days and it was it was exciting it was so weird I mean it is a very weird experience but I think for both of us like for to meet the person who's going to play you but also to meet the person you're going to play like it is a really unusual situation and um so yeah it was exciting yeah
0: mm-hmm. have you played
1: living real people before I at played
0: least? A, I had a supporting role in Marie Antoinette Sofia Coppola's movie mm-hmm. about 10 years ago and I played Duchess de Polignac who was a real person but obviously yeah, had long since passed away. <laughs> no scoping. Um, yeah, scoping <laughs> with uh, the Duchess. Although she looked like a good time, so yeah, it's a shame okay. she wasn't around. <laughs> she was a real party girl. <laughs> um, Sophie was like, "Think of Kate Moss," and I was like, "Okay, I got it, I got, got it." Um, <laughs> and uh, so, no. So the answer is no. You know, I've definitely been inspired by people in my life with certain characters I've yeah. played. But, uh, it's a whole different story when there, when the person's actually there. <laughs> well,
1: what I like about the way you play her, Rebecca, in the movie is that you, you know, we know the book exists. We know that she had the successful journalistic effort. But in the very beginning, it's really awkward. And you have like, you know, <laughs> being dropped off in an alley and not knowing where to go. And <laughs> like, you know, and, and the, the, this clear kind of discomfort as the white woman who's there and the journalist. Mm, and I mm. like that you kind of put that in there, even though you have the real Rebecca right there as a very professional, competent journalist. Is that, mm. is that hard to kind of, Add that humor in there and that sense of like it wasn't all smooth sailing at the beginning?
0: No, well, I hope. I mean, we. It's so unusual, this story, because it is such two really unique perspectives on an experience, which is of a young, naive white journalist, female, and then an older African American woman from Baltimore like it's a very unique story about this incredible thing and tragic thing that happened to her and this thing that she's obsessed with they're both obsessed with and I loved it I dove right in I loved those were my favorite things was was shooting that first scene where she where she walks into the house and meets her family and the pork chop and the whole the whole thing was – it's very unusual and weird. There is a lot of tension and it is really mm-hmm. awkward and um it was really awkward and tense to shoot. I mean, not that tense because John's so lovely, yeah. and yeah. you know, uh, who played Lawrence. He's so adorable. But, yeah, we definitely wanted to capture that. And, you know, she's 27 at the time, not yeah. the sophisticated, <laughs> you know, successful, you know, like I was when right. I was 27. Yeah. I definitely not, was not – the incredible yeah. thing you say today. <laughs> 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 One of the amazing Choking. things to me about this
4: this this idea of making having this real life character and doing this arc in the movie is that, you know, that was 11 years of my life. So, I started out as a very different person than I was mm-hmm. when the book was finally over and mm. you can't really convey that amount of time in this 95 minute movie. So, you had to sort of embody the, you know, the the emotional kind of um you know, the maturity evolution and the the lessons that I learned in life through a much shorter period of time, mm-hmm. in a sense, in the movie. And I think it was amazing mm-hmm. to me to watch that.
1: Mm-hmm. So was it always clear when, I mean, I know the story went through a lot of different versions, but Deborah kind of being the central kind of focus, having kind of a two-hander between you guys, because Henrietta is a major character, but she's, you know, in the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oprah Winfrey optioned the book. She was obviously a huge part of it from the beginning, but did that seem natural to you in the beginning as a way to kind of hone down this very large sprawling story to make it about a daughter kind of searching for her mother?
4: I think this was, you know, their focus from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think it felt to them like the most natural
1: way to
4: frame the movie you know and it is, it's like it's like a road trip it's a buddy film you know that's it kind of fits into a mm-hmm. an idea of what we can traditionally see in movies but then with these flashbacks that make it a much more complicated story mm-hmm. and yeah i mean this is one of the reasons why it took me 11 years to write the book it's one <laughs> of the reasons why it took 7 years for the movie to happen is that it's it's a really complicated story and i think you know there were definitely versions where it was trying to sort of do what the book did, which is weave these different narratives together and not have it be just one central narrative. Mm-hmm. And there were some that were more heavily on the Henrietta story or the history. Or And, you know, I had 400 pages to tell all these stories and to go into the science and every bit of Henrietta's life that I could find. And, you know, in a shorter movie, it's much harder to do all that. And they also just, you know, Deborah is this, she was an amazing character. It really was an incredible journey for her. And so I think that was something that they identified from the beginning. It, that wasn't something I had any sort of involvement with.
1: Yeah. So it's not just that Deborah and Rika character are kind of like interesting characters and then you get, you know, these incredible intense scenes with Oprah Winfrey, but that you're talking to each other about science and about microbiology yeah. and things that like mm. women don't talk to each other about in movies ever. <laughs> yeah, it's just really amazing. Yeah. I mean, you go in, you go to the scenes are you know, Oprah is one of the most famous women in the world. Um, but like, what like, what do you reach out, reach to on that level where, you know, you're not a microbiologist, so you have to learn that part of it. And then so you, how do you prepare for the, that huge range of scenes like that
0: opposite someone like Oprah Winfrey? well the science stuff was really intimidating i failed biology i'm not you know <laughs> i didn't do it, I, I, it well <laughs> for whatever. different reasons whatever <laughs> don't say that uh, um and so that was why i was really intimidated by that stuff most scared really and so i just tried my hardest to understand and you know rebecca's very adept at explaining to a layman like me what Scientifically breaking it down so it's Mm -hmm. not intimidating, and uh, like she did with the Lax family. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I don't know. I don't. So, um, and then just running light and drill, 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 and trying to say it so it doesn't sound like it's I'm Mm -hmm. speaking Cantonese Mm -hmm. to myself. You know that I can understand (laughs) what I'm saying, and you know you you do as best you can, and it's uh, it's hard. That's why the film's really challenging because of all that technical stuff. And I think George did a great job of bringing it out and making it visual so the audience can follow. And it's once you do get a handle on it it's very beautiful. The science mm-hmm. behind it is actually really stunning. My favorite scene probably is when they see the cells up mm-hmm. on the wall. I think yeah. it's really yeah. beautiful. And that's what I took away from it was a really kind of the, the beauty of science and how incredible it is and just the the mystery of it and yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So on a day-to-day basis where you're on the set, you're kind of watching these scenes go out like as an antibody experience. Or are you like mm-hmm. in there to be like, that's not what my muffler looked like? <laughs> the muffler is a very important part the of the story. The muffler is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, the muffler was a big part of the story. The
4: fact that I was driving around in this beat up car where the muffler had fallen off and that they were sort of embarrassed by that. It's a really um,
1: valuable detail, though, cause you talk is. about turning it into a narrative arc like that yeah. is part of the story as you see, you know, where you were and then, you know, yeah. where it leads.
4: Yeah, no, and my role on the set was not that at all. I mean, my role on the set was to sit there and go like, Oh my God, this is happening. (laughs) Like, that was really my job. Basically, and it was, you know, I was there. A lot of Lax family members were there, but only a few times. I think we all came to the set maybe, what, three or four times. Oh, okay. So so your role as a producer did not play into like, no, I think my role as a producer is more just like, wow, she worked really hard. Um, (laughs) you know, and I was really involved in the script sort of consulting on that. And, you know, and I think they just wanted to sort of acknowledge that. But, yeah, no, I was not producing in any way and it was very much, on the set, it was like George, the director, and it was the actors, and honestly, the, I mean, one of the things that was so amazing to me as just a regular person visiting a set was the props people and the Mm -hmm. costume people, what they did to make the reality, you know, the amount of time they spent figuring out exactly which computer I was using in 1999, Mm -hmm. the first time I, you know, and what that car should look like. And, yeah, so I mostly just showed showed up and freaked out and was just like, this is amazing because it was beautiful. And, you know, I think we all were pretty sensitive about the fact that it would be really weird for Rose for me to just be sitting there while she's (laughs) shooting these really intense emotional scenes and having already to worry about all that. But then to worry about the the real character sitting there being like, "Mm, I definitely wouldn't have like, you know. Cross my arms that way or whatever it was, yeah. right? So we were pretty careful about which moments I showed up in. Yeah, None of the really high emotion days, you know, the big scenes like I wasn't there for any of that. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, to see someone else play you is the most amazing. It's one of the most amazing things I think you could sort of see happen. To, and But not just to play me, but the whole thing. I mean, there was this one day, I have a little cameo in the movie. I'm, I'm the nurse that in 1950 goes and gets Henrietta from the waiting room and takes her back to her first appointment, which is this kind of meta amazing thing for me. But there was this one day where that happened at Hopkins and we filmed that scene. In the room with this famous Jesus statue where Mm -hmm, Henrietta mm -hmm. used to visit before her appointments and also Deborah did. And there were these flashbacks where I was in the room with Renee, who plays Henrietta, in the moments in 1950. And then they'd be, they'd switch. And then it was Rose and Oprah filming a scene that actually happened in that very room. Mm. And it was the strangest experience because I was in a room that I had been in with Deborah, watching a moment that had happened in that room. With someone who was playing me, who looked so much more like me in that moment than I did, because I was dressed up as this nurse from 1950. <laughs> oh. No one recognized me. I was walking on the set, and I was just oh, like this funny. anonymous person. And it was it was an, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life, watching that happen and and seeing how time can change in that way in films. And I just got such a tremendous respect for everyone involved in films: the actors, the props, the costumes, the makeup. But the power of seeing that happen, and that was actually the last day of filming, right? And seeing it happen in the room where it happened was so emotional yeah, um, and powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you're in those, there's a lot of really heavy emotional scenes. And there are moments when you kind of you know, have a, big emotions as a character, too. But a lot of it is you kind of reacting to other people having these like huge emotional moments. Where do you jump into that and like not just kind of be the observer in the scene? Because mm-hmm. it's, that seems like really hard because like Rebecca saying, it's not about. Rebecca, but it is about you as an actor
0: Mm. i really leaned on george wolf our Mm. director yeah i was very conscious of doing too much and doing Mm -hmm. too little because it is a tricky role because she is observing and it's not it's her story but it's not her story too Mm -hmm. it's like it is this loss of this grief of this woman who's lost her mother and i um and also everything she's done for science like it encompasses a lot and so i leaned on george a lot and he loves actors you know he's from the theater he's an iconic theater mm-hmm. um legend here in new york and um i just leaned on him a lot and i had so much information from rebecca with all the great footage of them uh, audio footage of her interviewing and just hanging out with with deborah so you know I'm just myself as best i could and
1: you know what was the best stuff that Rebecca gave you that like wasn't in the book and might not even be in the movie but like got you in the headspace of <laughs> it was where terrific. All that was. We actually
0: um sat down with a really old friend of hers Hi. and had lunch <laughs> in Atlanta and um he was Italian, right? Yeah, What's yeah. his name again? Andreas Garantino. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hope <he's> awesome. <laughs> and um that was really lovely to see someone with an old friend mm. and their body language and hear mm. him and his perspective on her and things that like would never be in the movie, but just yeah. as an actor to get a perspective mm. on a person outside of this, just this experience was really great. I well, loved you, you that. You think
1: about playing a Duchess of Marie Antoinette, who, you know, there's some information <laughs> right. about her, but probably not nearly as much as what you can get, mm. you, just endless resources.
0: Endless. And I mean, but in a way at the, in the end, I have that you have to let it all go Yeah, and just, cause I'm never going to be Rebecca. Yeah, So I eventually I, can, I have to like stop yeah. that and just do the scene and, you know, it all, inform- I mean, everything is informed by the other actor, no. at the end of the day, anyway, so. Did you, really were
1: you just... part of a casting at all? Um, because you guys do look alike, <laughs> like, it's, it, it's a do. good match, but, you know, because you're an author, like, they could have cast, really, anyone who didn't necessarily look yeah.
4: like you. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I was involved to some degree, but not, so when they first started talking about casting, when George came along, and George is this incredible, you know, he's an incredible director, he's this, he is this incredible sort of figure in the world of theater, mm-hmm. and the gift that that brought To the story, you know, the movie was, I think, pretty amazing. You know, he, he came to the, the script with, you know, this storytelling perspective that I don't know that someone else from the non theater world would have necessarily brought. He also thinks a tremendous amount about race in this Mm -hmm. country. And I think it was so perfect to have him. And also, like, every actor really wants to work with him. So the actors that he was able to get, even for these, there's amazing theater actors in this movie. (laughs) They are all so incredible. Like, they're just, Mm -hmm. every actor is amazing. And, you know, he came to the, this knowing what he wanted for mm. the most part and who he wanted and you know and the first time he and I sat down together he was like there is this woman called Rose and she must and he was just does so determined like like no that? he does he no does he talks know. like this he talks very fast and he does like this he's like there is this woman named Rose and she looks just like you and she just <laughs> has to play you and she just feels like you that is George. Is it not George? Or is it George. <laughs> but That's he
0: really good impression. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be very happy to hear that.
4: Um But no, and he, but then his concern was like, there is this, this narrative arc of Rebecca and there is this question of like, you know, where do you cast? Do you cast the young oh, Rebecca the old ah, Rebecca? Do yeah. you cast yeah, the middle yeah. Rebecca
0: and how do you play? Mm. And can you play? Because I'm 10 years older than she, you know, I, mm. I was 37 when we shot this, so right. 36 and, um, you know, uh, Rebecca was 27 yeah. when she right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah and she started this, you know and so,
4: so, so there was then these questions of like so you know how do you and it wasn't like is Rose too old for the role but it was really like what does this role look like mm-hmm, what does this role mm-hmm. need
0: there's a naivety and, that, you yeah and there's a naivety you know, and it was this question
4: yeah and so necessary. there were discussions about you know what about this person uh, too young and the whole time Joseph was like no it's Rose it's Rose it's Rose it's <laughs> Rose it's Rose and then it, ended, it was Rose um, so yeah there was but there was not I mean he was so clear on what he wanted and who he wanted for so many things and I, he was right about
1: all of it. <laughs> I think my my favorite of all, you know, this huge amount of casting in, in terms of small roles is Renee Lee Goldsberry playing Henrietta because it's such a so huge role and obviously yeah. she won a Tony for Hamilton and mm-hmm. she's kind of famous in a way that a lot of theater actors aren't because everybody knows yeah. Hamilton mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. that, you know, this woman you spent 11 years trying yeah. to uncover her story and bring her to the forefront and then you see her played by somebody. So like, powerful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, I mean, what does that like feel like to kind of watch that? Not that it's a culmination of your work, but it's this amazing... Uh, visibility for this woman who was invisible for so long.
4: Oh yeah, no, it's amazing, and Renee just did such an incredible job of embodying the spirit of her that I think we, you know, I and the members of the Lax family really came to understand was her. And oh, it just makes me cry like every time. <laughs> every time there's like there's this scene where she's dancing, mm-hmm. and it's this is the one thing Deborah always. The very first phone call that I had with her, she was very afraid to talk to me because so much had happened to her. She had every reason to not trust me. But she also said, you know, I would love it if a book would be written about my mother because then the world would know who she was and the incredible contribution she made to science. And she's like, and then maybe I'll know who she was because she was two when her mom mm-hmm. died. And she first phone call, she said, you know, like, what was her favorite color? And did she like to dance? I want to know those things. And part of getting her to trust me was finding the answers to those mm-hmm. and bringing them back to her. Not saying, just like,
1: about going to science, but talking no, about who she was No, it was as about Henrietta yeah, for yeah.
4: sure. And both of them, but very much for Deborah, it was about – you know, initially about Henrietta. So the first... Questions that I sought to answer in order to win Deborah's trust were, did she like to dance? What was her favorite color? And her favorite color is red. And she loved to dance. She would actually sneak out of the house sometimes with her best friend and go dancing. And that scene of Renee dancing in this juke joint in this red dress. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. It is so gorgeous. And her, the way she performed that was so powerful. And in that, this is one of those things we talk a lot about, you know, what a book can do that a movie can't because there's so much more space, but movies can do things that books can't. Mm -hmm. And that, Moment and a lot of those moments, like she just embodied her in this beautiful way and the joy with which she was dancing and the time period it captured and the fact that in that one little split second moment, that was like 50 years of Deborah's life. She wanted to know. Did that happen? Mm-hmm. Right? And like, what did mm-hmm. that look like? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was just, there's nothing that can compare to the experience of seeing that come to life on the screen. And, and yeah, every time I, I, I cry. Like, I can't not cry when yeah. I see that scene. It's just so beautiful. I grin, I laugh, I cry. It's all the cliches. But it's like, <laughs> it's all really true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you wish
1: Deborah could oh see it. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's yeah.
4: the greatest heartbreak about all this is that mm. she hasn't, she's not here
1: to yeah. watch it. Um, So for people who see the movie, I don't know if they will listen to this after they see it. um, There's talk about the Henrietta Lacks Foundation. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, what's, what's going on with that? What's happening with the foundation now?
4: Um, So I started the foundation in 2010 and, you know, I came to the decision to do that because as I started to understand the story and what the family had been through, you know, that the cells had been taken without consent, that they had been turned into this, in some ways, multi-billion dollar product, the family got nothing from that, that they made all these contributions to science, everyone in the world benefited and the family suffered a lot, like all of those things, the more I learned about that, I just said, I don't want to be another person who came along and potentially benefited from that without doing something in return. So Deborah and I had talked about this. And I said, you know, I can't pay you for your story, because a I have no money, I'm broke. And I paid for this with credit cards and student loans. And but, you know, if the book ever comes out, and if it gets published, I want to start this foundation. So the mission of the foundation in a broad The broad mission is to help people who made important contributions to science without their consent. So members of the Lacks family are eligible, and so are the descendants of the Tuskegee Syphilis Studies men and a lot of other people, more than we would like to Sort of acknowledge in the world that we've, we, there's a large population of people that qualify. And so to date, we've given out, I think it's like 56 grants to members of just the Lax family, um, for education, everything from private high school, undergrad, trade school, graduate school. One of her great granddaughters just got her RN. It helps with medical expenses and various other sort of emergency needs. We've given some education grants to the Tuskegee Syphilis Studies descendants. Um, and my hope is that this movie will help spread the word about that and that, you know, some mo- money from the film went into there and my royalties but my hope is that it will become much bigger than I could ever possibly make it by myself and that it will sort of live on like the Gila cells and help people including her family for a long time to come congratulations
1: Mm. on that thank you Uh, I guess one last question for both of you having worked with Oprah who is a kind of more of an icon than a person to so many people (laughs) uh, what do you guys know about her having worked with her that is not evident to the rest of us what blessing have you gotten from
2: being (laughs) her
0: presence She's a considered person. That's what I took away. She really does practice what she preaches. I think she's very meditative on things. She's not an impulsive person in that sense. She's fun and things, but uh, she's quite, you know, considered, I think, and um, wickedly smart and funny. And, you know, she was quite reserved when we were shooting. She really was conserving her energy, I, t- mm. I think. I've i have to ask her, but I respect her process of what she was trying to, cause she had a lot on, she physically oh, yeah. and emotionally, spiritually, what she had to do is, it was a lot. So I totally respect that of kind of just conserving herself. But, um, yeah, she's a very yeah. considered meditative person. Yeah. I would, I would take away. And she's yeah. also tells a great story. She's a great yeah. raconteur. Oh, Occasionally, totally. she'd tell me a great story in the trailer, and I just be like, well, she knows everyone. Oh my God, I know she'd tell me like a, yeah. an Obama story, like some great Obama. Oh, I'd be like, I think what? they're literally on vacation,
1: like right now, or they yeah. were recently. And, yeah, yeah. like
0: amazing. You know, yeah. just be like, oh, that's right, that's, that's right. right. I forget, you know, yeah. Obama. <laughs> yeah,
4: right. I think one of the things that I took from my time with her was, I guess there were there were two things that really stood out for me and one was how I saw Oprah the actor I mean you did too who is very different from Oprah the the television celebrity personality right you know and it was an amazing moment to watch her sit down for the first time with the Lax families we had this moment and Rose was there Mm. when she sat in the room with I think it was like four or five of Deborah's closest family members to talk about Deborah as a character Mm -hmm. just this was Oprah the actor talking to people who knew her character and she walked in and she sat down and she said I am terrified to do this. This is, you know, a really complicated role. You know, I want to do this right. And, you know, she just talked to them about why she was sort of afraid, in a sense, and feeling like this was an enormous task ahead of her, which it was. And I think for all of us, she was very clearly nervous. Like, she really did seem like a person who was pretty nervous about this. And that was really relieving, I think, to all of us. Not that we didn't think that she was would do something like that but just seeing she really understood the gravity of Deborah's character and the story and she wanted to do it right and as an actor and that's a big thing to undertake and it was an amazing moment because Deborah's sister-in-law who was like one of her best friends from the time they were 16 was sitting next to her and she sort of reached over and you know she's like you've got this and deborah has got you. Mm. Like You're good. We have total faith in you. And it was one of the most beautiful moments, I think, to really see that. Mm -hmm. And she worked so hard on the character and to really keep her in mind and also the family in mind, which was an amazing thing to see. And the other thing I I saw that was just, I guess, shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was really amazing was just to see how hard, you know, I mean, I don't know if she would say this, but It struck me how hard it is for her to just go through the world,
1: (laughs) you know, as getting Oprah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. You know, there's one, the first time we went like downstairs to the restaurant to get tea. Um, you know, we got in the elevator, like regular people and went downstairs and it was like, you know, Mm. you, and just watching the way the world watches her and how graceful she is with that. I mean, she, you know, this Mm. millions of selfies and the screaming and the, (laughs) you know, I was really moved by how patient she was and how she was just like, you know, this, they, this is, this is, this is what it is. And yeah, so Mm -hmm. I, I, I was sort of moved by that in a way that, um.
1: Maybe being friends with the Obamas teaches you that like the spotlight could be The Grace. (laughs) Well, and also I think
4: just the Grace, I don't know that her spotlight could be any bigger, honestly. They
1: may be equally
2: famous. And the,
4: just, well, and especially in Baltimore, I mean, she Mm -hmm. is just such, for, you know, African American women in Baltimore, she was such an important figure when she first got on television and, and seeing that in Baltimore when she was there was really powerful Mm -hmm. and just sort of being reminded of like where she came from and what Mm -hmm. she went through to get there and the impact she has on the people around her that was um that was great to see yeah
1: uh well uh rebecca scloot and rose Byrne. thank you guys so much for uh i just like looked at each of you and said your opposite name which (laughs) says how much you've merged after watching the movie uh (laughs) thank you guys so much for uh
0: coming and talking to me thanks for having us thanks for having us
1: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And please keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes and uh, talking to us wherever you can find us. We're all at VanityFair.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws And Mike.
3: Mike underscore Hogan.
1: And we're all at Little Gold Men.
3: And Joanna's at Joe Wrote This.
1: Oh, yeah. You, I should have you, done
3: it in the Brando voice. Oh, yeah. You want, to, do, you want to do it again? Joanna and Joe. No, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I lost it. Work,
1: work on it and we'll get, we'll okay, get back right. to it next week.
3: Watch
2: a couple holograms. <laughs> and we'll get out there.
1: <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best new version of Emmy campaigning goes to Mike Hogan.
3: fair amount of shirtless sort of jogging.